HelloFresh is on a mission to bring cooking back into our lives with real, whole, healthy ingredients we can feel good about. They do all the shopping, planning, and deliver step-by-step recipes and their ingredients right to your door so you can relax and enjoy all there is to love about cooking. They plan, they shop, you cook. Go to HelloFresh.ca and use code UNCONDITIONAL50 to save 50% off your first box. In Islam, you do do penance. You are, you know, required to fast for 30 days and say uh, remorseful prayers. There are specific prayers that you're required to do. And he's tried to do those, I think, a hundred times a day. He says a particular prayer to express his remorse. But of course, he knows that uh, it's never enough. I'm Annalisa Nielsen, and welcome to the final episode in this season of Unconditional, a podcast about what it's like to be a mother whose child is sent to prison. I actually first met Farhat after reaching out to her when I saw her speak at a forum on the conditions of the Ottawa Carleton Detention Centre. She's often speaking at forums like this. Actually, she's a very busy woman. She's on the executive of this committee and on the board of something else, and she's volunteering for this other thing. She's also the mom of three adult children and the grandmother of one preteen. Somehow, she was always able to make time to see me. I was born in Srinagar, Kashmir, the capital city of Kashmir. Very beautiful. And I went to a Catholic convent, so I was educated by Irish nuns and grew up speaking English. Farhat went to university and she graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and English Literature. So after BA, the trend was that everybody got engaged. And I had this burning desire to come overseas for further education. So I came to Canada in 1969 as a young 21-year-old. Through a very strange circumstance, I was offered a marriage to a cousin. The suitor was living in Canada at the time, but because he was a cousin, he was known to Farhat's family. And so after a lot of back and forth between the two families, her parents eventually agreed to the marriage. And I agreed, too, because here was my ticket to go out of India and study. Farhat made it clear to her future husband that her goal was to come to Canada to pursue her studies in journalism. But those dreams didn't (laughs) come to fruition. And I did take some courses at university, but I didn't know the wherewithal of family planning (laughs) and just ended up with two children in two years and gave up. Farhat's activism really started as her family became more and more involved in the local mosque. My husband at the time, he was very active in the mosque. So I saw a lot of women who uh, were very traditional and uh, I sort of became their spokesperson. And so we started to do some work at the mosque, making them women-friendly So um, my outside interests have always been community involvement and community engagement. All three of Farhat's children were born in Hamilton, Ontario. 
they had the best upbringing. You know, my husband was a skilled worker, a blue collar worker, but we always had enough for everything that we needed. But I was, uh, the, the, the dissatisfaction continued with me. So when my son was four years old, I got hired by Canada Post. So I remember him being very resentful at four years old. He would be very resentful that I go to work. So there would be a lot of crying when I would call home and he would be crying and sometimes I would come home. But overall, he had a very happy childhood. When he was a teenager, he loved sports. So we enrolled him in hockey. He played in hockey and he did very well in school. He was always the top uh, percentile, you know, the 85 and 90 above his grade eight teacher told me that, you know, there's only once every few years we get a student who has such strong writing skills. But uh, in grade 10, we got a call from school all of a sudden that he wasn't attending classes. Well, that was like the, you know, the ground from under our feet fell down and we hurried to school to find out what the matter was. And then we were told that he was just staying in the library and he was seen praying. He said that he doesn't feel part of the class and he feels alienated and he feels he's different. and. So that was when I started to also see that his marks were not up to par. And uh, we were just shocked at how drastic that change had been. And also he was working very hard. What he would do, he would uh, be uh, doing a math homework or something. And if he made a little mistake, he would just tear up the whole sheet and throw it and then start from scratch. That was very strange to see. And then he started to take very long in the shower. And we only had one bathroom among the four or five of us. That would create a lot of friction and anger. And the sister is, you know, banging on the door and dad is saying, hurry up. And really, this had been such a drastic and sudden change that all of one time I went into his room and I was, I just had to take a step back. It was so neat. His bed had been made. There was no clothes anywhere on the chair or anything. All spick and span. And that was a drastic change from before. Like, you know, I would was used to seeing the messy room and all that. So he was struggling by now. But I had no clue. I was just clueless as to what is happening. I didn't know about mental illness at that time. I didn't know about depression and I didn't know why he was cleaning up himself so rigorously. And we just sort of ignored it. But along with all these uh, developments, my own marriage was falling apart. My husband wasn't very happy with my working and uh, he would say that the kids are being neglected and you're taking too much time at work and all that. And for years, that went on for years. And uh, finally, in uh, 1988, I uh, decided to separate. I put in for a transfer at my work and it was accepted. And then we came to Ottawa. And my son was very happy. 
he was the one who suggested Ottawa because he was very much learning French and he wanted to go to McGill University. So he said Ottawa would be ideal. And uh, for a few months, he was enthusiastic, but uh, he couldn't cope. By this time, he had started to have severe depression and would stay in his room for uh, days on end. He would spend so much time on his cleanliness that he would get exhausted. So those were very turbulent years and very toxic environment at home, too. We didn't know what was happening to him. One day, Farhat came across an advertisement in a magazine offering to provide information about obsessive-compulsive disorder. So she sent away for the information and kind of forgot about it. And then weeks later, it arrived. And I was just shocked. The brochure described all the symptoms that my son was having. It talked about the depression. It talked about the obsessive thinking and the compulsion to clean and be neat in everything, in the thought, in word, and everything he did. What was missing in this whole picture was the paranoia. I wasn't aware that there is some paranoia going on. And then he would be also very obsessive about certain things like religiosity. He would be oh, you said something and you shouldn't talk like that because if you talk like that, then you're not a Muslim anymore. Uh, If you say this word wrong, you're not Muslim. And one time his sister had said something which he considered blasphemous, like she had said holy crap or something like that. So he, he said he couldn't sleep all night. So he came home here when I wasn't home, and he got his sister to repeat a certain verse from the Quran so that would eliminate that blasphemous thing that she had said, and she would be restored to her faith again. So I didn't have a name for this kind of obsession. I didn't know what this was. And I kept encouraging him to go see a psychiatrist, and he did that. And it would seem to get better, but it was cyclical. It would get better for a little while, and then something would trigger it. And so that went on for a lot of all of the 90s, basically. Now he's 29 by this time. He's an adult, and all you can do is try and convince him that, you know, are you taking your medications? Did you fill your medication? And he was doing that. So I had no other recourse. But, you know, just maintaining, going, having his prescription filled. And he was on a cocktail of several medications. But, uh, you know, this uh, illness was just something that overcame him over and over again. People make you guilty if you are trying to do too much for your children. When he was, you know, lying in bed and not getting up, I was getting frustrated. I wanted him out and helping or going to school or doing something productive, but he wasn't able to. And the doctor actually told me, your son is not able to get up, so you're not going to reprimand him out of that. And even my family, you know, they would say, you're doing everything for him. You know, so if you do, then that's the critique you get from your family or from society. They say, oh, 
she's coddling her son, you know. But this, there's such a fine line. You don't know what to do. I didn't want to enable him. I didn't want to coddle him. I wanted him to be able to do the normal thing of going to school and, you know, graduate and stuff like that. He, he couldn't graduate from high school. He couldn't. It's very difficult for parents. They get it from all sides. Towards the end of the 90s, Farhat's son was on disability, so he was getting a little bit of money. He was actually starting to do better. He was finding part-time work at grocery stores or gas stations. And so Farhat encouraged him to move out into his own apartment. He enrolled back into school, and he was studying computer technologies. And he developed a really close friendship with another man in the Muslim community, who ended up becoming his mentor and was helping him get his life together. And that's where he was going, but uh, his friend took him to Lebanon to uh, marry his sister because uh, he was told that, oh, there's no one here in Canada that is suitable for you. So this gentleman took him to Lebanon to marry his sister. Farhat was concerned about this arrangement, so she made sure that her son had told his future wife about his condition. So I said, did you tell her that uh, you have this condition? He said, yes, she knows I'm on medication and she's going to help me with it. So that was very reassuring that he would be looked after and I'm not the only one that's going to have to run and uh, see if he's okay all the time. But that reality didn't translate because he had been expected by his uh, prospective in-laws and this particular friend that he would sponsor her, but he didn't. He didn't have a job. He didn't have a one-bedroom apartment that his friend was encouraging him to acquire, you know, and uh, he was struggling. Soon, Farhat's son became frustrated and his paranoia increased. I I was working and my um, son had just told me that he phoned his wife in Lebanon and divorced his wife and I was very angry at him. This is in February, just a few days before this horrible thing happened. And I told him, listen, you are in a state right now, so call her and say that you are sorry. So after having, you know, talked to him really angrily, I didn't hear from him and I got really busy at work and I fell and injured my ankle really badly. And so I couldn't go to work the next day. I was lying in bed with my foot propped up and I called my son and I said, I need you. I've injured myself and can you come? So I left that message for him and I was lying in bed and the phone rang. The phone rang and it was uh, somebody identified themselves as a reporter from the Ottawa Sun. And they said, do you know where your son is? And I said, no, I don't. And they said, do you know that his friend, and they named him, has been stabbed and he's died? And I said, no, I don't know that, and I don't know. And I hung up after that. 
I, I think I actually screamed. Of course, I immediately knew what had happened because he had been saying about his friend that he's just taking advantage of me. He just wanted his sister to come to Canada. That's why he's using me. And I had been trying to dissuade him from that thinking, and I had told him this is wrong. He got embittered so much so that he did this horrible act that took the life of his one friend and his mentor. I tried so hard to have him declared NCR, which is not criminally responsible, because of his long record of being hospitalized and being on drugs. It was a very, very harsh sentence, the maximum that he could have taken. He was convicted of second-degree murder and given a life sentence with no possibility of parole for 15 years. The courts did assess him for mental illness and found him to have schizoaffective disorder. But uh, my son pleaded guilty because he didn't want to put the victim's family through a very painful uh, process. We sat in the courtroom and heard those victim impact statements, so we know all we can do is pray for them. My son was incarcerated February of 2001, so 9-11 hadn't happened then. He was taunted and um, mistreated in prison at first due to his obsessions. He had religious obsessions and he had cleanliness obsessions. But when September 11 happened, it changed the whole dynamic because all of a sudden, who you are already in prison, but now you have ties to terrorism. And that's the kind of taunting that the guards started to make. They would say, oh, there goes Osama bin Laden's cousin or something like that. He was persecuted, basically. He was persecuted due to his religious beliefs. I wonder if Farhad's son were Christian and suffering with religious obsessions, if it would have been more easily interpreted in a Canadian prison as mental illness and not just as typical behavior from a Christian person. Anyways, now that he's in prison, Farhat does her best to, to help her son maintain a healthy balance. And she tries to keep his mind away from his religious obsessions. I would encourage him to listen to music, and he loves music. He had compiled some rap songs, and very good ones too, while he was at Kingston Penitentiary. But when these obsessions take over, then that fades in the back and he just gets totally involved with the religious aspect of things. My efforts have been always to have a healthy balance. It took about five days after the crime before Farhat was able to go and visit her son. It's like a dream. It's like a nightmare, but... It was behind a glass. He came in that orange suit. Of course, I was very distraught. And he said, oh, I don't know what happened, Mom. I, I felt so compelled. I was so compelled 
And this is all I remember him saying. I was so compelled. I'm like, what was it that compelled him? It was a very difficult time. It was a very difficult time. Going to visit him was punishment that I wasn't prepared for, and no one is prepared for being judged. The hostility, the derision, the scorn, that was new to me. I would go and see him, but uh, at the same time being aware of what had happened, that was difficult to get over. The fallout for a family who had their lives ruined, a husband, a father, a new father. You know, he had many siblings and he was a cherished son of some old parents who lived back in Lebanon. It was a lot of anguish. And my son is very remorseful. All uh, recognition of the facts had been removed in his mind at that time when he committed the act. He said, when I read the victim impact statement, I was shocked. And he knew they had a daughter. He knew he would go and they would give him food and he would visit them. He, like he was their family. They did everything for him. He said, oh my God, had I known that he had a child, why did I, that just blanked out at the time. I would never have done that. On the day that the crime took place, Farhat was at work. And he had called me, and I didn't answer the phone. I was very busy at work, and I ignored all the phone calls. But that was the call. He was on his way to do this act, and he had called me. And he told me that after, he told me that in prison, when I had gone to visit him, he had said, I called you, I called you and had you answered, maybe I could, you could have said something that would have jolted me into realization of what I was doing, and I would have not gone. When he told me that, there was just a cold hand grabbed my hand, and I just got drawn into that guilt with him. That has not left me, that feeling, no matter how much I say, you know, okay, I was busy. I had no way of knowing it was him, you know, it could have been anybody, but some days I feel totally implicated. And some days I hate the thought that he said that to me. Very, very difficult realization that something could have been done and to live with that to think that I could have done something. But when I did call him with my foot injured, it was too late. It was too late to do anything about anything. Unconditional is produced by me, Annalisa Nielsen. A huge thank you to Farhat and her family. Music by Chad Crouch, aka Poddington Bear. Special thanks goes to Louise Leonardi of the Canadian Families and Corrections Network. This episode was made possible by Paula Flalo, Lauren Bridal, and the rest of my classmates in the Documentary Media Program at Ryerson University. Thank you to Vid Inglevix and Don Snyder for consultation assistance. <laughs>